You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on issues of human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Gabriel Stein. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights in Lund, Sweden. In today's episode, we have an interview from the recent Nature of Peace conference. Our senior researcher Alejandro Fuentes interviews Carl Bruch. He's a senior attorney and director of international programs at the Environmental Law Institute in Washington, D.C. He's been leading for many years the global effort to establish a new multidisciplinary field of environmental peacebuilding. Enjoy. So my first question to Carl will be, which is the contribution that the environmental peacebuilding could provide for sustainable consolidation of peace in post-conflict scenarios? Carl. Environmental peacebuilding cuts across the stated goals of post-conflict peace building. The Secretary General of the United Nations has in a series of reports on peace building in the immediate aftermath of conflict highlighted a series of key domains. And each of those we have seen time and time again depend at least in part on natural resources. So in the realm of security, we see that one of the most important factors in post-conflict peace building is demobilizing, disarming, and reintegrating former combatants. In most of the conflict-affected countries that we've seen, ex-combatants prefer or elect, often by substantial margins, to go into agriculture. That requires that there be available land, and depending on whether there's rain-fed agriculture or irrigation, it also needs water rights and skills. So the security often has, a, has an environmental dimension. As a, another place that we see this is with uh, military forces and irregular forces that have gotten involved in conflict resources and trying to uh, reform those practices. On the economic and livelihood side, we see that natural resources underpin uh, livelihoods, they underpin uh, GDP, exports, revenues, we also see that different resources are important for different aspects. So uh, often the extractive resources, oil, gas, minerals, are critically important to the economic side. They can also be, especially minerals, can be important in artisanal mining, but often agriculture plays a more dominant role on the livelihood side of things. Basic services, the provision of basic services, electricity, water, sewage, these all require inputs or outputs to the natural environment and natural resources. Confidence building and reconciliation, political inclusion, these are um, not inherently environmental, but we see that often cooperation happens around shared interests in resources. This may be water, it might be protected areas, it might be forests, but often natural resources provide a context for confidence building and reconciliation. And finally, efforts to reform governance, to fight corruption, to establish rule of law depend critically on natural resources, and it plays out in the natural resource context and the environmental context more broadly. Thank you very much, uh, Carl. So here we have reasons why environmental peace building as a new discipline, as a new framework to deal in post-conflict, 
need to be put in place. So according to you, which are the challenges that this new framework is facing in order to be considered as the way to deal with post-conflict, the way to consolidate peace within post-conflict scenarios? There are a couple of real challenges. One of them, frankly, is that we're still developing the evidence base. We have collected a lot of experiences, tools, we've tried them, they, we've written, we as the international community have written up these tools and have, have sought to learn from them. Um, I myself was involved with colleagues in the development of 150 case studies with 225 authors looking at post-conflict peace building and natural resource management. And there, this has an unprecedented body of experiences and knowledge, but it's still only a start. And so what we have seen are very suggestive, very interesting ideas about how to manage land or water or extractives or forests. And in some cases, we have some good quantitative data. But too often, we're still, we're still learning. And um, so I think one of the, the important things is building the evidence base. And that applies both to understanding the dynamics and to understanding which approaches, which solutions work under which circumstances. And so, and I think this is important to realize because often the focus in, on the research side has been more on the dynamics, the resource curse. And we understand how the resource curse works, the limitations of the theory, uh, the me some of the mediating factors, but we don't entirely understand how do you prevent the resource curse? Mm -hmm. If you do this, this, and this, your odds of preventing the resource curse uh, um, increase dramatically. Uh, that this is that we still are trying to figure these things out on the solution side. So I, I think that there's there's we have a lot of ideas about how things go wrong, and then the question is, okay, maybe we try this, maybe we try that, and collecting the, that evidence base I think is really important. Related to that is the challenge of monitoring and evaluation. And this is a very boring topic to most people. <laughs> it's, um, it, it, you know, this is the sort of thing that most people do at the end of the project because they have to report back to the funder, whoever that is. But the reality is that we have, in most cases, a results-based management framework for programming. And we need to show impact. And this is often done quantitatively. How many boreholes did you drill? How many people have books? How many people have access to water? There isn't the bigger question of, did this make people more peaceful? How do you even measure that? And uh, well, you know, we can measure the number of times they tweet. Is that really an accurate measure? You know, it's, and one of the difficulties is that we measure what's measurable, not necessarily what's meaningful. Yeah. And so uh, this challenge of monitoring and evaluation, frankly, makes it more difficult to get funding. And I, I would also highlight a couple other challenges with monitoring and evaluation. Another is that you have multiple actors. And how do you attribute impact to this actor or to this action when the bigger dynamic may reflect an aggregation whose pieces we don't entirely 
we can't attribute percentage impacts to each piece or how they relate to one another. So, as a, thank you very much for your, your answer, Carl. As a last question, you have mentioned in your, in your answers the importance of governance. So, I'm uh, curious to know, and I'm sure that our followers would like to know, how uh, governance impacts the process of environmental peace building in post-conflict scenarios. Which is the role that governance has in playing an important and a key factor within post-conflict scenarios? The mark of a transition from conflict to peace can be defined by the extent to which rule of law is restored, that, that we are able to transition from a rule of gun, a rule of strongman, to a rule of law, where everybody is held accountable to the same rules, where everybody follows the same rules. This is not unique to environment, it is broadly. But given the economic interests, these, the conflict resource dynamics, the importance of resources to livelihoods, we often find particular challenges to, related to governance of environment and natural resources. Um, we've seen that one of the important things to understand is there are multiple sources of law, multiple actors. This means that it's often important to adopt what's called legal pluralism, to recognize that there are more than one system of law operating in this space. Often the government has been, has been unable or is unable to exert its authority outside the capital. One way to try to start restoring the rule of law is to recognize local customary institutions and norms, but to place that within the broader statutory context. Uh, so we often see with land that land may be governed by traditional institutions according to traditional norms, but it's still subject to the Constitution. And this is a way to ensure that women's rights and rights of minorities are respected. Um, we also find that the post-conflict period is an opportunity. We, we talk about a lot of risks, but it's an opportunity to reform laws, institutions, and practices. Um, and some of these may be practices that led to the, onflict, the, the onset of the war, that uh, there had been inequitable distribution of land. Yeah. There have not been equitable distribution of revenues from oil and gas development. And the, the parties had not been able to agree on things before conflict. After conflict, they're tired, they're frustrated, there's international pressure, and they're more willing to make those compromises. So the post-conflict period offers a rare window of opportunity to reform the laws and institutions. And I think it's also important to recognize that this window closes that what you do or don't do can get caught. That you, know, you want to make sure you, you, you make those reforms while you have the opportunity. And there is a tension between making those reforms quickly and doing it right. And I say mm -hmm. this because 
there, we have seen that often it's important to consult with the public and stakeholders and go through a deliberative process. That takes time, that takes money, that takes energy, that takes expertise. And if where laws are rushed through, there isn't ownership, and it often is not really appropriate to that context. So the question is, how do you um, go through the process that's participatory and deliberative, but still do it within that time period? And then I would also say, related to this, that uh, public participation and consultation are critically important. It's important to building local ownership. It's important to building understanding. Often the process uh, yields additional insights. And you, uh, the um, legislators or regulators or decision makers realize, hmm, maybe we could do it a little differently mm -hmm. that will address these concerns. We could still make the, the changes. And so it can improve the outcome. Mm -hmm. And the, other, the last thing that I'd say on governance is that it's important to think beyond the law. That lawyers are often trained, this is the law, it has to be followed, and if, if it is not followed, these are the penalties. But we, ha we have to realize that law operates in this broader context of culture and social norms and institutions. And we need to think about the capacity of the institutions. We need to think about how do we build a culture of compliance so that we can ultimately transition to a system, a, cu a culture, a society that is ruled by law. Thank you very much, Carl. I think you have given us a, a lot of insights, especially for our research community that follow us, to think on which are the important topics that they perhaps could start researching on in connection with this emerging field of environmental peace building. Thank you very much and thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was our senior researcher Alejandro Fuentes interviewing Carl Bruch. He's a senior attorney and director of international programs at the Environmental Law Institute in Washington, D.C. You are listening to the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Laws podcast on human rights. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with more interviews with experts from around the world on issues affecting human rights and international humanitarian law.